I would say try to be a little bit easier on yourself. I would say almost the sense of like life is too short. And I truly believe that. I know it's such a cliche kind of life is so short, blah, blah, blah. But like it's so short that it's like not worth it to like beat yourself up so much, especially around things that I now believe are uncontrollable and just beautiful parts of your personality that need to be expressed. And there's no one right way to be. I'm still learning that myself. But just this, take a load off. Like life is already hard enough. Don't add unnecessary burdens to yourself. Welcome to the Models We Live By podcast, the podcast that explores how overcoming the mental models we all hold on to can help us grow to become better people. How are you doing? Doing well. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, who you are? My name is Leah and Galir Wimay. I also just go by Leah. It's an impressive Yes, it's an impressive name. last name. It is. So I am 28 years old, grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, small conservative town. And I recently moved back to Richmond, was living on the West Coast for a while. Never thought I'd come back, but me and my wife found our way back here. And I am working a tech job. So finding my way with vocation and what I want to do long term with that. But for now committing myself to it and working from home, which is a good way of life. That's me, in short. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How about you? Who are you? Uh, I'm the wife of Leah. That's how I like to introduce myself. Yes, (laughs) Uh, I'm Megan. I am from San Diego, born and raised, and so I am new to the city of Richmond and the state of Virginia, but enjoying it so far. It's my first fall and I'm excited to see the leaves drop. I too work in tech and from home with our husky rogue who's just full of antics and adventure. I am an Enneagram 3. Definitely use the language of the Enneagram to articulate my experience quite often, so uh, may make references (laughs) during the podcast. I'm all for it. I'm also working to be Enneagram certified uh, in in teaching, and so I really uh, enjoy that through uh, the narrative tradition. So yeah, it's a little bit about me. You're an Enneagram 3. I heard you talk about this a lot. Yes. Can you explain a little bit what it is? Yeah. um, If anyone's familiar with the Myers-Briggs, I like to think of that one as descriptive of how we function in the world. So it's a lot more about the types of things that we do and our behaviors. And so in comparison to that, the Enneagram, instead of answering the question of how, is more of the question of why and kind of where our motives come from and kind of asking that deeper question of what's behind our behaviors. And I find that really helpful for some of the things that we do because so often we can behave in very similar ways but have very different motivations for doing that. And I think it's important to get to the root of it. So Enneagram 3, what does that entail? Yeah, well, uh, Enneagram 3, the the kind of why behind what we do is we want to be okay through our achievements and how we are seen by other people and our image is very important. And so um, we try to 
bring attention to our good qualities and our successes and really avoid our failures. And so navigating through life, really trying to appear in the best light and often very concerned with vanity, wanting to come across in a way that will be received well and often in that pursuit can really rob themselves of being genuine and being true and often putting on a lot of false masks. That's pretty big. But it's also cool that you can say it about yourself. You know, it's all part of the work. How about you? What Enneagram are you, Leah? I am an Enneagram 1. What, mm-hmm. what does that mean? I used to actually identify with an Enneagram 4. And so the 4 is very dear and close to my heart. But now mm-hmm. definitely feel more so Enneagram 1-ish. But it really just depends on my season of life the stressors, things like that. I would say Enneagram one is, you know, referred to as a perfectionist or the reformer. I definitely associate more with that word perfectionist, just because that's kind of the atmosphere I grew up in. Everything had to be done the right way. There was always a right and a wrong, very black and white thinking. Yeah. And so that's how I oriented my life really and viewed situations, people, circumstances, you name it, all through a filter of how can this be done the right way? And if someone wasn't doing it the right way, I almost viewed it as inferior. And so there's just this constant judgment of not only others, but yourself too, because you're always just judging yourself based on what could I have done better? Mm -hmm. How could I have been better? And so forth. And then, you know, Enneagram 4-ness, I still very much relate to that in the sense of like, no one understands me. No one understands how I'm feeling or what I'm going through. You almost feel kind of like a lone island sometimes. And I do feel that way just mentally a lot of times. Less so in my life, I guess. Like I don't feel alone necessarily, but I do feel alone in kind of my mental processes of things or kind of what I spend my time thinking about. I'm, I'm an eight, as you guys know by now, which I think just means that I'm rude, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm direct. But I have a lot of those things too, like what you said of the number one. I am very intolerant of lazy thinking. If people cannot figure things out, I just get frustrated. But I also hear the Enneagram 4 that I feel misunderstood. I think the feelings that we have like are often felt by each other, right? Like I think that isolating feelings to a type I think is dangerous because we we share so many feelings, right? And so I think it's really paying attention to the dominant style that kind of motivates your life. I think we all share to some degree that feeling of being misunderstood and feeling alone. I remember that I did one of those divergent tests like from the yeah. book. <laughs> And guess what came out? Candor came out for yeah, me. Yeah. The most boring. It's not boring. <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm perhaps also divergent. No, Candor, <laughs> you love justice and you mostly speak truth. You know, when a police yeah. officer pulls me over and they say, do you know why I pulled you over? I'm like, yeah, because I ignore the stop sign. <laughs> and then it's awkward because I, I cannot lie. Why would I lie? There, there's no benefit to me lying at that point. Yeah, see my three is all about deception. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Yeah, you know, that appearing in the best light, it's not gonna happen if we admit our mistakes. So that's the battle and that's the work is, 
you know, leaning into the discomfort of being seen in those moments of, you know, being caught with your hand in the cookie jar. So I invited you guys over because I think you have a pretty interesting story. Like I recognize a lot being queer and coming out later in life and thinking, how does this work? Can you tell me a little bit how it was growing up and how it is that you now know, oh no, I definitely am queer, but that you could also say with certainty four years ago, oh no, I totally wasn't queer. How did that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor and it was a very just evangelical conservative atmosphere. So the discussion around anything queer, the possibility of any of my parents' kids, my siblings being queer or myself was just out of the question. It was just never something that was freely talked about, but I would say around the age of 14, I just sensed that there was something different about the connection that I had with women and just that energy that I would feel around them, not even turning it sexual or anything, just just a different energy, a different feel-good vibe. Right. And I was curious about it. And I didn't act upon that curiosity until 16. And so it was just kind of like, aha, uh-huh, I wonder. But that was never a wondering with anybody or in discussion with a community of people. I kept it to myself because, again, that was considered basically like the worst sin next to getting pregnant out of wedlock. And so either one was, was terrible. And then, yeah, around 16, I just, that, that curiosity kept growing, I would say from the age of 14. And I struggled a lot with just everything from self-harm to eating disorders to you name it, just over drinking and things like that. Um, Mm. And it was, I don't know if I would say I did all those things out of this like hidden queerness, but I do think there was just so much tension that I was holding inside that I couldn't release or talk about that I just used those, you know, methods as a way to get out that, that tension that I was feeling inside and the things that I couldn't talk about. So at 16, I was just kind of like, you know, screw this. I'm going to pretty much live a double life, like do the whole church thing, good kid thing. Mm -hmm. Don't tell anybody about it, but start dating women. And so I did. Yeah, I I went on the online dating sites because there's obviously no one that was (laughs) eligible in my spaces that I was in. And, you know, I entered college at a young age, 16. So Mm -hmm. I was exposed to a lot of things before that. I was homeschooled all my life. So there was just this like bubble that I was living in for most of my life. And then, you know, 16, boom, I'm around a lot of people, exposed to a lot of things. And I just went for it. You know, I was just kind of like, all right, let's do this. I, I can't. I can't keep all of this inside anymore. I have to find a release for it. And I have to discover this part of myself that has been left dormant for a long time. But I never told anybody. I, you know, I had, gosh, four or five best friends that are still my closest, dearest friends to this day who saw me literally and known me ever since I was in diapers. Mm -hmm. And it took me four or five years to tell them too. And so you can just imagine like the deep, deep shame that was associated with 
just me identifying as someone that may be queer. And so it was just a very long journey of discovering myself and coming to terms with it, but also never feeling like this was something that I could live into. And so there was this going back to this whole mental models thing is I just judged everyone that kind of gave in to this fleshly passion or this fleshly desire because even though I was technically giving into it myself I would always repent and go back to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness right yeah and just have this whole cycle repeat itself over and over again but I was always better than those that were out in queer because I was not out yet and I was constantly asking for forgiveness And it, it honestly made me feel closer to God because it felt like we're in this together. Mm. And so there's been this, I think, breaking of false intimacy, I guess you could say, yeah. from my relationship with God now. It's, it's a hard thing to navigate post me coming out because so much of my relationship was around my struggle and my lack of uh, embracing it. And so me and God were in it together, fighting it together. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. That sounds super hard. You said something about the shame that you felt. Where do you think that shame came from? Oh, it came from religion. It came from the construct of God that I was taught to believe. Um, came from my parents, my community. I mean, everyone in my life, I don't think, knew that they were contributing to that shame, right? They wouldn't put those words around it. But the entire atmosphere was built for this almost shame mindset and model. Because Mm. I could never live up. Right. Let alone, I come out as queer. Like, no, you could never. You could never measure up. So. That's pretty intense. Mm. Was your story similar or was it completely different, Megan? I think dissimilar to Leah, I don't think I've ever felt like I had a secret that I was hiding in the way that Leah was. And, you know, I I too was raised in a, you know, evangelical Christian conservative space. But the way that I think that I coped with developing and, you know, the time that most people are starting to notice crushes, I didn't feel anything at all. I think it was just completely repressed because it wasn't an option. It wasn't something I could explore. And so while I had really close friendships, that's all they were for me. And I uh, valued them to a really great degree (laughs) to the point where now I'm like, hmm, maybe I could have glued in a bit earlier. But yeah, I do think that there was such a part of me that I, you know, as a three, right, as an Enneagram three, I was so invested in being good, being seen by everyone as this like good Christian girl. And I was, I was a worship leader. I went to Christian college and was doing all these things and and volunteering and did missions and all these things that was getting me everywhere I wanted to be that like to even explore or kind of ask those questions risked shattering everything that I had built for myself. 
So I think there was a big part of me like in kind of repressing my sexuality that felt like kind of holy (laughs) in a way that I didn't, you know, I wasn't boy crazy like the Uh other girls at youth group. And I know there was a period where I wondered if I might be asexual because, you know, I I just didn't feel that way that they all described and there wasn't any room to imagine experiencing that way for the same gender. So that's like a big part of how that kind of showed up in my growing up. And so I came out quite a bit later, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. five years ago. And at that time, I immediately found a really unique community that was all kind of coming out together in Mm -hmm. conservative church. And so we were all very passionately side B. And so kind of for any of your listeners who might like not understand that term, side B is like a Christian perspective of I'm acknowledging my orientation rather than like saying, oh, you can't be gay because God wouldn't make someone gay and you need to just (laughs) accept yourself as a straight person, but rather acknowledge that, you know, my experience is queer and lesbian, but in that I'm going to hold myself to the behavior of maybe traditional sexual ethics. And so we were all together in that, in a way where it was like, okay, we identify as queer Christians and we're all going to just be celibate and wow. refrain from any of our sexual urges because that's not what God wants for us. And so it was a lot of very sad listening to Julian Baker on repeat together. And it was in that that we all started asking this question of like, okay, if this is what we're going to do, this is hard. Yeah. This is really hard what's being asked of us and also noticing ways that the church really fails folks who uh, do identify as side B and hold to that belief system because, you know, there's all of these programs for like marriage retreats and the singles group is really to like get people together. And so people who, you know, if they feel called to celibacy or hold to a side B perspective, there isn't a lot of space to feel supported. What are you going to do for holidays? What are you, who's going to pick you up from the airport if like this is your lifestyle? Uh And so starting to notice some of those things and kind of asking this question of, okay, if we're going to live our lives like this to this code, we need to really understand the book that's telling us to do this. And so collectively as, as a group, we all started kind of asking a lot of questions of the text and looking Mm. at scripture and the way that we interpret the Bible. And at that time, I also returned to Biola where I went for graduate school for seminary. Because I was like, I'm, I'm going to learn how to Let's understand go. this book. <laughs> it was in that where I started realizing, like, I thought I was going to get surety going back to school. Of Like, I yeah. thought I was going to go back and I was be like, okay, I know how to understand this now. But what I found was that it was way more complicated than I would have thought yeah. possible. And there's so many different interpretations to understand just one verse, let alone all of scripture. It was kind of that realization that, made me start to deconstruct and uh, think about my sexuality in a new way. Sheesh, that's two completely different stories. Yeah. But similar in a way that there's some sort of like, I'm not going to acknowledge who I am sexually attracted to or who I am as a person, right? Did you also feel shame in there or was it strictly because you had a certain belief that you cannot be queer and therefore I will acknowledge that I'm queer, but I'm going to be celibate. 
Yeah, I think there's a degree of shame. I Like, I remember even just overhearing my parents casually referencing the gays and even just using phrasing like that made me <laughs> yes. digest that group of people in a certain light, right? And, you know, so I think there were a lot of little things like that where it really formed that kind of off-limitsness of being able to even explore and wonder. And I think to this day, I kind of feel really curious about if I could go back and feel a lot more permission to have explored. Yeah. How much of like becoming myself could I have done a long time ago? Yeah. Um, and so I think like there's a part of me that grieves for that still. Wow. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry also for you that you had to go through that. So now you're married. Yes. To a woman. I am. What happened in your brain? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've, I've been asked this a question like this, you know, a version of this several times. And there's this kind of a story that comes to mind, which is, I think there I reached a point when, in kind of grappling with scriptures, grappling with many different voices telling me what not to listen to, what to listen to, and calling me to repentance. And even just in my searching, even when I hadn't done anything, that I reached a point where I was just so anxious, so anxious, just crippling anxiety, like feeling just at this brink of like, I'm not sure what I think about all of these things. And in that point, like starting to click, like, I just don't know if if I actually believe or hold to these things I would have held my whole life. And what does that mean? It was more the fallout more than anything that just felt... Um, that kept me paralyzed at this place of indecision, even yeah. though I could feel in myself like this unraveling of, you know, I'm just not sure that these things sit with me in the same way that they mm. did before. And so in that place of anxiety, I kind of really just was calling out to God and got this picture of, you know, Jesus as my good shepherd. And if I'm this wandering sheep and I have my eyes fixed on Jesus, I have to trust that he's going to use his winnowing fork and, and guide me home. And so it was almost this like leap of faith with that yeah. picture of just like, all right, I'm going to take this step and I'm just going to have to trust in that step that like these things that feel unraveling will either come together in the way that they were meant to be or continue unraveling. And this is my new path. This is my new journey of mm. an unraveling faith. And really just trusting that Jesus would make it clear to me one way or the other, whether by just like the continued, yep, this still doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I'm just going to lean into this, this step in this direction of ultimately Leah and, and marrying her, or I would, you know, it would make sense to me and I would come back to my old belief system. I think there was like a point too where I was feeling like very frustrated because at that point I really wanted to be the next Beth Moore and I wanted to write Christian books on prayer and all of these different yeah. topics. And I remember someone telling me, you know, very earnestly and, you know, with love for me that like no one's going to buy those books if I'm openly queer, even if I'm side B and not acting in hmm. my you know uh, attraction that like the books that they would want to buy from me would be about how I'm celibate that was like such a blow to me of like my value to the evangelical Christian community mm -hmm. as an openly queer and celibate person at the time was only being my celibacy how is that for you Leah yeah it felt like a very 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 long journey 
And I never in a million years would have thought that I'd get to the place of peace where I could marry a woman. And so it's still a little bit surreal, to be honest. And I would say it took many, many, many dark nights of the soul and many Mm. hitting rock bottoms in order to get here. It was a culmination of a lot of things. But I do think that those really dark nights, maybe for lack of a better word, like helped me get here uh, because I was just desperate for an answer. I was desperate for something better. And so I knew that it wasn't working. You know, you can only do that for so long and you either end up dead or you find a new way. And so it's kind of how it was going to be for me. And so I was like, I got to find a new way. And I just was like, you know what? This this girl, Megan, she's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And I had always told myself that if I ever did come to that place of acceptance, she would be that person who I would want to give it a shot with. Yeah. And so it came after, you know, again, one of those really surfacey relationships that I was like, I want something deeper, you know, but I was just giving myself scraps. And I just finally was like, okay, I'm going to come out. I'd already been out at that point, to be honest, but it was, again, like the wording of, oh, I'm struggling with my sexuality, all the Christianese type of words that you use. And so there was a definite shift when I started dating Megan, you know, I came out to my family in more of an accepting way of just saying, hey, this is my girlfriend. I'd never openly said that I was dating anybody. Being very public about it was crazy for me. Mm. It was really just like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. I have no idea if I'm going to feel peace. I have no idea. But up until this point, what I've been doing isn't working. Yeah. And so it, it took a lot of that just like, trying it out and feeling it in my own body, in my own mind. But from the point of us starting dating to becoming like at peace in myself was probably two, three years. And so it's very, it's a very recent thing, even though I've been out, I guess, to myself for quite a while, actually feeling peace within myself is only really in the past year or so. And I would say the thing that kind of tipped it over the edge was probably in 2020 when I feel like for the first time I just kind of woke up to the world and how terrible Christians were. Mm. And not all of them, obviously. I don't want to, you know, put everyone in that same bucket. But there was just something with, you know, um, just all the shootings and just, just all that was happening in our world, especially with politically wise. And I just saw like these people around me whom I listened to all my life, just start behaving in a way that felt very not like Jesus. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to identify myself with this way of Christianity, you know, and they weren't necessarily acting in a way related to, you know, queer issues or anything like that. But it was so much more than that. It was so much bigger. Right. And I just started seeing cracks in the way that I was taught and just got to a place where I feel at peace now that even if I'm wrong, that like there's enough love to go around. And that makes me so happy. Like it, it brings me so much peace. And just knowing that I'm good, I'm covered. God's going to love me at the end of the day, That's even if right. we're getting all of this wrong. That's right. Like, 
that's the best. That's, that's who I want to serve and that's who I want to dedicate my life to. That's such a huge mental model shift for, for the entire world to hear, if you ask me, because this is not a salvation issue, right? Yeah, to your point real quick, I, I do feel like people react in such a, almost a violent way because there is such fear that it is a salvation issue. And I think coming to the point where I don't believe that anymore takes such right. a load off and right. leads to a much happier life. Does being in an affirming church help find that happiness? I think so, because there's so much of being a person of faith where there's common language just in mm. in the things that we value and, and being able to kind of speak about things in that sense, but then also to have queerness together. I think sometimes yeah. I've felt too Christian for the queer community and too queer for the Christian community. So mm. sometimes trying to find a community that shares both is rare but precious. And so having an affirming church that kind of gathers <laughs> that niche is refreshing. What would you say to the millions of young Leahs out there? I would say try to be a little bit easier on yourself. I would say almost a sense of like life is too short. And I truly believe that. I know it's such a cliche kind of life is so short, blah, blah, blah. But like it's so short that it's like not worth it to like beat yourself up so much. That's right. Especially around things that I now believe are uncontrollable and just beautiful yeah. parts of your personality that need to be expressed. And there's no one right way to be. I'm still learning that myself. But just this, take a load off. Like life is already hard enough. Don't add unnecessary burdens to yourself. And that is so much easier said than done. And I think a major thing that has helped me be able to like say that and try to live into it is surrounding myself with amazing people like my wife, my friends who mm. just affirm who you are. Community makes the absolute difference. I think one thing that Leah said that I think is really important to flag too is like the piece of the beating yourself up it takes mm -hmm. up so much mental emotional space uh, and I think yes. even just you know being someone who loved Leah during a time where she was beating herself up and and, and really just it took up all this space just to try to you know deny her sexuality right and and to right. try to you know be in the fight right to, to use that terminology and to struggle and wrestle with her sexuality that there wasn't anything left to kind of give to the world or to offer like everything every ounce of her was going into the, the fight and so I think like that was something that really stood out to me as I was navigating my own sexuality too is just that we weren't meant to not have anything mm, left over right. if this is a fight that like god wants me to fight then I should have strength and then some to be able to give good things to the this planet and and other people and i have nothing left if all of my energy is going into repressing my identity is that what you would say to the millions of megans out there millions of megans you heard it here first that's right as you know i have right. millions of listeners exactly <laughs> after my thousands of guests yeah well thank you so much for coming on the podcast i feel like we can fill another podcast up with all the questions that I have, like I can talk with you guys forever. And that's why I love you guys so much. Thanks for making me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for making me feel this way. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. We love you.
This has been the Models We Live By podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this content, it would mean a lot to me if you look me up on Instagram or TikTok as Mish Van Essen. The music is by AGST and the song is called Flaw. Looking forward to sharing with you again next time.